Well, thank you so much for being here this morning. We are doing a series that we've been going through this summer called Supernatural. And we've been talking about God demonstrating himself in our lives in a supernatural way and working through our lives in a supernatural way. And the things we've been talking about are really characteristics of the life of Christ. We've been calling them a fruit. And you see, got a bunch of fruit up here this morning, a fruit of the Spirit. And really, if you think about them, they're things that everyone wants to experience. Everyone wants to know what it is to be loved, to be fully known, to have no secrets and someone still accept you and love you. What an amazing thought that is. To have joy. How many people are on pursuits of joy? Whether it's through career, reputation, home, finance, whatever the thing is they're using to try and obtain joy. And we're talking about a supernatural joy. A joy that supersedes all circumstances, that regardless of what's happening at home, regardless of what's happening at work, you can experience. Peace. I've told you that peace is one of the ones that I really struggle with. A, a struggle with anxiety and worry, wanting to do things on my own and my own strength and my own performance. And some of you maybe struggle with those things. And I know Jesus. And so why do we do that stuff? Patience, last week you talked about patience, the ability to trust God in the midst of circumstances that are out of your control. When people persecute you, when people say certain things, when time's out of your hands, the ability to, to rely on and trust in him. And this week we're talking about kindness, an uncommon kindness. If you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Galatians chapter 5. I invite you to turn with me to Galatians 5. We put verses up on the screen. If you don't have a Bible, we would love to give you a copy. If there's even a member of your family doesn't have one, you can go to the Connections kiosk. If we don't have any left over here by the offering box, if you want to grab a copy of the Scriptures, we want you to have one so you can see what's happening around the passage. Today we're in Galatians chapter 5. I'll start reading in verse 16. If you have your Bible, go ahead and turn there. And if you've been with us through this series, you know that we've been talking about these people in Galatia who we have a lot in common with. Because they, like us, are confused. And many of us are confused. Some of you have made the decision that these people in Galatia had made. It's the most important decision you could ever make in your life. It's the single most significant decision that anyone can make. It's to trust Jesus Christ as their Savior. By faith, you place your faith in Jesus Christ. But then it becomes difficult after that for many. Because what happens is, now how do we live the Christian life? And I don't know what happened for the Galatians. Maybe some of them thought, if I trust Jesus as my Savior, then all my problems will go away. Or if I trust Jesus as my Savior, all the circumstances will be a whole lot easier, and therefore I'll have peace, or therefore I'll have joy, or therefore I'll have fulfillment. And so then when you trust Jesus as your Savior, and you still lack peace, peace with other people, peace with yourself, sometimes maybe even you feel peace with God, or when you, you don't feel loved, or you don't feel joy, then the question is, now how do I experience that? And so what happens is they naturally do what many of us naturally do. Some people just figure, well, I know that I trusted Jesus as my Savior, had this experience, I, I know that I'm going to heaven, now I'm going to live like hell. I, I know that I'm good with God, so now I'm going to do whatever I want. And Paul tells them, no, 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 you're missing the boat. In fact, your life doesn't look any different than someone who doesn't claim to even believe in God. And then there's another group of people. And some of you, just by the nature of the fact that you're here today, may fall into this category, it's the people that they trust Jesus as their Savior by faith, but then they try to live the Christian life in their own strength. And so you learn what the rules are, right? You learn church people don't do this stuff, and they do this stuff. So here's the list of good deeds, whatever that is, and here's the list of bad deeds, and don't do that stuff. And you kind of, on your own strength, try to do this stuff. And then in your heart, though, you don't have any more peace than you had before. You don't have any more joy than people who are atheists. You wonder if you have any more self-control than a Mormon, people who don't have the Spirit of God. And if we're honest, many of us, there's nothing supernatural about our lives. And Paul says to the Galatians in Galatians chapter 3, you fools, you started so well. You started this relationship by faith. Who cut in on you? Who cut you off? Who stopped you? Who bewitched you? Because now you're trying to live it in your own strength. There's a different way. 
other than you doing whatever you want, and there's a different way than you doing all the rules and trying in your own strength to do it. And he talks about it in Galatians 5, verse 16. He talks about how to live this Christian life. He says in verse 16, So I say, live by the Spirit that's supernatural. And you'll not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. That's what's natural. For what's natural, the desires that are natural, are contrary to the desires that are supernatural. And, and the Spirit, what is contrary to the sinful nature. They're in conflict with each other, the supernatural and the natural. So that you do not do what you want. But if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. The acts of the sinful nature, the acts that are natural, they're obvious, although none of us would want to be classified as these things. Many of us could classify ourselves as these things. Sexually immoral, immoral impure, debauchery, idolatry that's having something else in the place of God that's ultimate in your life, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition. <laughs> Who's not guilty of that from time to time? Dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, here's a warning, I warn you as I did before, that those who live like this, those whose lives are a consistent pattern of this, will not inherit the kingdom of God. You're not going to heaven. But, contrast, there's a supernatural thing that can be produced in your life. But the fruit of the Spirit is love. Supernatural love. Joy. Supernatural joy. Peace. Patience. Kindness. Goodness. Faithfulness. Gentleness and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Who writes a law against love? Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the sinful nature with his passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. And here we're told in this passage of Scripture, ten verses, seven times the Spirit is mentioned. Here we're told the key to the Christian life. But the problem is the key to the Christian life is the scariest person of the Trinity. It's the Spirit. But it's the Spirit that produces supernaturally in us love, joy, peace, patience, the fruit that it produces, the Spirit produces, that He produces in our life. Not that we do. The works were contrasted, verses 19 through 21. And one of those fruits is supernatural kindness, the one we're talking about today. And supernatural kindness, we'll see, requires an uncommon care. Supernatural kindness requires an uncommon care care. That's our first point today. It's an uncommon care because it's a care for others that's only empowered by the Holy Spirit. The supernatural kindness that we're talking about today is not just any kind of kindness. It's not just a friendliness. It's not just a courtesy, but it requires an uncommon care. And if you think about it, there are certain things that we all care about. Just by the nature of you being human, you care about certain things, probably your own comforts. Everyone here probably has an opinion about the temperature in the room today. You care. For some of you, it's perfect. For some of you, it's too warm. For some of you, it's too cold. You feel different. Everybody's got a different opinion about it, but we have a common care that we all care about that. We probably all care whether we eat a meal today. We probably all care whether or not we have a scratch, and so we want to itch it. Does that work? I just wonder if it made you feel like you need to itch. We all have cares, though. It cares about our own concerns. It cares about our own bodies, our own lives. There's a common care right now of the Olympics. Probably many people care about the Olympics around the world, regardless of where you're brought up, what it is. But did you notice, though, the, the Olympic time period, you care about stuff you didn't care about before. All of a sudden, I care about how a 12-year-old or a 14-year-old is balancing on a balancing beam. <laughs> I don't watch that normally, but I, I care at this point. And you know what? There's some uncommon cares that come up at the Olympics, too. Did you notice there are certain parts of the world that are interested in sports that we're not interested in? And so we get updates about how they go, but they don't actually show them on TV in America. You get sports that you Fencing is not on very often. Uh, trampolining is not on very often. There's one that I'm very interested in, and it's an uncommon care, I think, for Americans. It's badminton. 
Now, the reason why I care about it is because I dislike it, and so I'm very interested in it. I don't believe that it should be an Olympic sport. I, I think that it's more like something you play at a family reunion than it is an Olympic sport, and so I'm bothered by the fact that it is an Olympic sport. If you follow me on Twitter, you saw that I tweeted. If they ever have bocce ball, pillow fighting, uh, you know, sports like that, I'm in. Like, I'm trying out for the Olympics, and they have badminton. Do you know what? There are places in the world where badminton is a big deal. In fact, there's one man that's an incredible celebrity in his country. He's the number one badminton player in the world. Some people have said that he's the greatest athlete ever. <laughs> I laugh at because he plays badminton. But he can hit a birdie 200 miles per hour. I read that this week. Do you know his name? Anybody know his name? I see that hand. No, does anybody have? No, his name's Lynn Dan. They call him Super Dan. Here he is. You know why? Because we don't care. No one knows his name because we don't care. He's a celebrity in China. There are a lot of people in China. But to us, that seems like an uncommon care. I also read this week about some things that people collect. Did you know there are people that actually collect belly button lint? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm glad that you aren't one of them. I have no interest. So that seems like an uncommon care to me. I read there are people that actually collect celebrity hair. How they get it and why they want it, I don't know. But they do. There are people with uncommon cares out there, and they're considered uncommon by us because they're odd. And what we're talking about today is uncommon because it's odd. It is that. The kind of care we're talking about is odd because so few people have it. But it goes beyond being uncommon just because it's odd. It's uncommon because it's supernatural. And the only way that it happens is by the Spirit of God in your life. What we're talking about is not friendliness. See, some people, when you hear kindness, you think somebody that opens the door, like common courtesy, someone who looks you in the eye when they talk to you, that's, you know, got etiquette. That's just basic stuff. That's not what we're talking about here today. We're not talking about something that's weak, because some people perceive kindness as weak. We're not talking about something that's passive. We're not talking about something that's just friendliness. We're talking about the very thing that drove God the Father to send his son, Jesus Christ, to die for your sins. It's God's kind of kindness. It's a supernatural kindness. It's the kind that's mentioned in Galatians chapter 5 and verse 22. But the fruit, something you can't produce, only God can produce, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. And when you go through the scriptures and you look for this word kindness, you find that it's attributed to God more than it is to anyone else. And you see God's kind of kindness all throughout the book. Everywhere you look, the beginning, the Old Testament, the New Testament, it's all over the place. The way that he demonstrates kindness, and here's what it is. It's when he sees your needs or sees the needs of other people and even to his own detriment takes action to meet those needs. That's supernatural kindness. It's love in action. That's what supernatural kindness is. You see it in the book of Exodus when his people, they're enslaved, they're in bondage. They've been that way for 400 years. They've been crying out to God. He's seen their misery, it says in the book of Exodus. He hears their prayers, but he does something about it. It's not like some of us. We think that we care because we see, you know, some kid from Africa with a bloated belly on TV and it bothers us. And then we change the channel. And God doesn't do that. He takes action towards it. He sees them, he hears their prayers, and he takes action to free them, and he raises up a man who then will have to look at the needs of his people, leave a life of luxury, and come and lead these two million people out of bondage. And so he's going to then, to his own detriment, have to care for these people. He takes action. The ultimate picture of it is when he sees our greatest problem, which is sin. The ultimate demonstration of God's kindness is the gospel of Jesus Christ expressed in Jesus. Titus chapter 3 and verse 4 says that, that kindness was expressed to us in, in Jesus Christ when God became flesh, fully human, fully God, comes to this earth and dies for our sins. 
But in his ministry while he's here on earth, we also see his expression of compassion, of care, of supernatural kindness. He looks at people and he sees their needs and he stops and he meets those needs. He heals leprosy. He opens blind eyes. He feeds hungry stomachs. And word gets out that there's a guy that actually cares like this. And can you imagine how people respond? People from everywhere are coming. All over the world are coming to see Jesus. Different socioeconomic status, rich people, poor people, all the people in the middle. There are people that are very religious and seem to have it all together. There are people that you can look at them and tell life has been hard. There are people in the military. There are people that are in offices. There are people that are walking the streets as police officers. There are people that are walking the streets as prostitutes. And they're all coming to see Jesus. And there are times where he gives us a glimpse into how he feels and what he sees when he looks at these people. Like in Matthew chapter 9, in verse 36, he looks out and it says that he saw the crowds and all of them, every walk of life, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. He's speaking about all of them. So he's talking about the businessman that looks like he has it all together and has accomplished all of his goals and still feels empty inside. And he's talking about the woman who just sold herself the night before and you can tell that life has been difficult on her. And he looks at all of them and he says they look, all of them, to him harassed and helpless. William Barclay tells us in his commentary on Matthew that those words harassed and helpless paint a picture of a woman who's been ravaged, a woman who's been raped, beaten, and left on the side of the road to die, totally helpless, no direction, and lacking life. And that's what he sees when he looks at the businessman. And that's what he sees when he looks at the stay-at-home mom. And that's what he sees when he looks at the prostitute. And that's what he sees when he looks at you and he looks at me because he sees our needs but he doesn't change the channel. He takes action to meet those needs. And if the world would see us expressing that kind of kindness, that would be something supernatural. But there's a problem. And the problem is we don't have that uncommon care to care for others that way to the point for our own detriment we would reach out to meet their needs. And the problem is because we have a common care. You know what that common care is? It's us. We care about us. We're worried about our pain and our problems and our needs and we think that we have to manage them, we have to fix them. And so all our eyes are on us. And it happens from the time we're little kids. We see it all the time. My wife and I went on vacation last week and we had the blessing of going on a road trip with our family. Uh, we've got four little kids. They're in the back and you can probably imagine what that was like. It is terrible uh, to ride in the car with them for that amount of time. I'm just being honest with you for how this feels. And so we're riding in the car. We're driving about three hours to go to South Carolina. And before we even leave Raleigh, they're asking this question that drives me nuts. Do you know the question? See, you're all sinful because you know the question. We never taught our kids this question. They just know it. It's like confusing to me how this happens. But they're asking that question, which is driving me nuts. And then I'll get going and I'll see the GPS. I'm making record time. Guess what they have to do? Go to the bathroom. Yes, certain ones. Is this true? You're great. Good. You're with me on this one. Yeah, they, they want to stop. So it drives me nuts. And then other than that, they're touching each other. They're fighting. Somebody's crying. One time I leaned over to my wife and I just grabbed a hold of her and I said, everybody just needs something from you. You know, I just started grabbing her. It's like, give me a granola bar. Give me a drink. I got to do this. You know, it's all this stuff is happening. So it would drive you nuts. But there was a point at about three hours into the ride. It was a miraculous moment. Everyone was living in harmony with one another. The van was quiet. And then our two-year-old Janie, she starts to cry in the back. We have no idea why. I still to this day don't know exactly what happened. But she starts fussing and she starts crying. And so mom's going, what, are you okay, Janie? What's wrong, Janie? I'm going, Janie, what is the matter? What is happening? And she's just crying and fussing. And then her one-year-old sister, who can't even talk, 
just makes a noise. She doesn't start crying. She goes, eh. And then Janie says what I think is probably the best line of the entire car trip. She says, no, I'm crying. Like, this is my problem now. I get all the attention. You look at me right now. The world's right here. Don't you understand this? And most of us are not literally crying. We're not telling everybody to look at our needs, but we all have problems. And we all have pain. We all want to be loved. We want people to notice. And while we might not physically, like a two-year-old, be crying, we're crying out. We're crying out, do you care for me? Everybody wants someone to care for them. Now imagine for a minute, on a macro level, what's a world like if everybody functions that way? If everybody's functioning, thinking about their own needs and has their eyes on themselves, do you know what happens? It's a distorted world because it's not the way that it was intended to be. It's actually a very depressing world. Because after a while, you have to realize, no one cares about my needs like I do. And that's disheartening and even depressing. And it's also a dangerous world when you take it to an extreme because you never know what someone might do as they're crying out of their pain. You never know what someone might do to try and meet their needs and use you. It's a dangerous place to be. But you know what? Naturally, that's what this place is like. You know what the Bible says? There is no one that's kind like this. No, not one. Romans chapter 3 and verse 12, it's quoting a psalm. The way you memorized it might be that there is no one good, no, not one. The word that's used here is actually the exact same word that's used in Galatians chapter 5, verse 22, to talk about kindness. There is no one kind. No, not one. None of us are naturally kind because we have our eyes on ourselves. So we can't do this. Here's the real problem, though. This is the first fruit that's super easy to fake. This is one where most of us, if you're, you have the soul search to see if you agree with me on this statement, most of you would be content if I just preach a little bit longer, defined it a little bit further, threw a couple more verses up on the screen, and then gave you some applications. And I could give you applications like, be nice to your neighbor this week. That would be kindness, right? Like, go mow your neighbor's lawn. That would be an assignment, uh, an application for today's message. Uh, find the obnoxious guy at your office, take him out to lunch. <laughs> now everybody who gets asked out to lunch this week is going to be like, am I that guy? You know, whatever. Um, <clears throat> you could... Uh, you know, do, give somebody some money, spend some time, just listen to somebody. Like, I could give you applications like that. You could leave, go fulfill those applications into your own flesh by your own power. And to my, from my perspective, it would look like fruit. We would all assume that you have the fruit of kindness in your life. But do you? How do you know? What's the difference between real fruit and fake fruit? You see up here this morning, we've got a bunch of fruit. Some of it's real, some of it's fake. Can you tell which is which? You look at the different ones and figure it out, and I'll grab some here. Just grab a couple of the grapes here. Can you tell which grapes are real, which grapes are fake? It's 50-50 right now, right? But maybe it's not. Maybe I grab two fake ones or two real ones. How do you know? Well, it's pretty simple, right? Like, who made which ones? So just a little made in China, made, in, made by God. You know, they don't have stickers on them, though. So now how do I know? If you think about fruit, you can't make it. Isn't that interesting? And you look at our passage of Scripture, it's interesting that in verses 19 through 21, we're talking about the works of the flesh, of the sinful nature. And in verse 22, we're talking about the fruit, singular, of the Spirit, what the Spirit produces. And it's the same as true in real life. 
you and I can't produce fruit. And some of you might be gardeners, green thumbs, whatever you want to call it. And you say, no, I, can, I grow fruit. I've got a vineyard or whatever you have out in your backyard. Uh, um, but you didn't grow any fruit. You can plant seed. You can cultivate soil. You can try to create an environment, which is the same thing that we can do in our spiritual lives. But you can't produce this stuff. Only God can. He produces life. This is life-giving. So which is real, which is fake? How do you know? There's only one way. And the scripture tells us that you have to taste it for yourself. And so you've got to know which one by tasting it yourself. Taste and see that the Lord is kind. Did you know that's what the passage says? The word's good and kindness. It's not talking about God's moral goodness. It's talking about his benevolence, his blessing to us, that he sees our needs and he reaches out and meets our needs. It's the same word that's used in Galatians 5.22. Taste and see that the Lord is kind, Psalm 34.8. So you have to taste it. That's a real one. No seeds, that's good. <laughs> a little bit of skin. But the way that you experience real fruit is you've got to experience God's kindness in your own life. And what happens is, then you get to the point where you realize, because you're experiencing him caring for your needs, his kindness in your life, taste and see that he is kind, that you begin to trust him with your needs. So you no longer have to manage them. But you trust him with your needs, and now you can take your eyes off yourself and see the needs of others. And he begins to produce a fruit in you where you actually have a desire to reach out and meet those needs of others. Not because I told you to in a sermon. Not because that's what good Christians do. Not because you have a list of, and if, as long as I mow somebody's lawn every fifth, whatever. It's none of that kind of stuff. It's the Spirit of God works in your heart so that you reach out and meet the needs of others. Have you experienced that kind of kindness in your life? See, there is no one that is kind naturally. No, not even one. But supernaturally, we see in this passage, there's a fruit that's produced in us as followers of Jesus Christ that's different, that's unique, that's an uncommon care for others by the power of the Holy Spirit. And the only way that it happens is if you experience it yourself. So if you experience this kindness. I had someone send me a story this week about a woman in China, and I saw her story and thought, now that's kindness. And what it was, she's a pretty poor woman. She, for a job, would go out and dig through garbage and then recycle the garbage which I don't know on the scale of jobs there in China how that works out, but that's pretty low, I'm assuming. And uh, she said that what she would do is she'd go out and find this stuff in the garbage, and she oftentimes found children. And they didn't know her story. It started in 1972, and uh, what happened was they now think that she's rescued somewhere around 30 children in her lifetime, and she'd bring them home. She'd care for them herself, nurse them to health. Sometimes they give them to friends and other families that could take care of them, sometimes raise them herself. And they estimate there are about 30 children that she's rescued. Her exact quote was that she would go out and she'd dig through the garbage. Some of you aren't familiar with China's laws there. There's a one-child law, and so infanticide is a big um, occurrence there, and people will abandon children to leave them in garbage to die. And so what happened was she was in 1972 digging through some garbage, found a little girl there that would have died had she left her there. And then her exact statement was, how can I recycle garbage and not recycle human life? And I had that sent to me, and I thought, what a picture of the gospel. Because while we were garbage... The book of Isaiah says that the best we can possibly do on our own works and our own performance is like a pile of dirty rags, filthy, nasty, garbage. There's no use of it. It's all rubbish, Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, all the stuff we do on our own. That's garbage. That while we were still garbage, Christ died for us. There was nothing lovely about us. There was nothing compelling about us that caused him to die except for his supernatural kindness, his love for us, his mercy, his grace. And because of that, Christ died for us. 
so that we as sinners might become the righteousness of God. And when we receive that, that is the ultimate act of kindness, is the gospel of Jesus Christ. The most important decision you can make in your life is to place your faith in that. But have you experienced his kindness, the gospel? You know, everyone experiences God's kindness to some degree. That's the ultimate example. The very fact that I have breath to share with you this morning is God's kindness. It's his undeserved grace, and it falls on the righteous and the unrighteous. Every one of us has experienced it, but do you realize it? Because you have to experience that kindness before it will ever be produced in your life. And what happens is then we live by faith. (laughs) See, we start by faith in the gospel, and then we live by faith. We actually trust him that he's going to care for our needs. And then you know what? He has a work for us to do. And you know what he says to all the people that have been trying to please him and his culture when he's preaching? A couple chapters after that, Matthew chapter 9 chapter, there's people that have been trying to be religious. They've been trying to do it on their own. They've been trying to be good enough for God. There's other people that haven't, and they're just as worn out trying to fill those voids with other stuff. And to all of them, he says in Matthew chapter 11, verse 28, come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, burdened by your performance, burdened by your sin, burdened by your past, burden that you'll never measure up. And I will give you rest. You come to me. Let me paraphrase that. Taste and see my kindness. Come and experience me. Take my yoke. What's yoke? It's his job. It's his mission. It's the work that he has for you to do. He wants you to actually accomplish something. So it's not that work is totally out of the picture. Put it on you and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart. And you'll find rest for your souls. If you put this yoke on you, verse 30, and I quote this verse often as our, at our church. I never knew this before this week. He says, for my yoke is easy. Do you know what that word easy is? It's the same exact word that's used to translate kindness in Galatians chapter 5, verse 22. For my yoke is compassion. My yoke is care for you and for the people around you. My yoke is kindness. The work that I have for you to do is a work of kindness. And here's the great news. The burden's light because I'm the one that actually does the work. I do a work in you and it produces something supernaturally through you. And it's this kindness, the supernatural kindness is the very thing that I'd use to change the world. The supernatural kindness requires an uncommon care. The supernatural kindness can also change our world. That's our second point. The supernatural kindness changes the world. And just think about it from an individual perspective. If you've experienced the gospel, even that beginning step of placing your faith in Jesus, God's changed your world. Think about how your world, your life, your sphere of influence, your circumstances, your family, everything's different because of Jesus. Or let me ask you this question. How would it be different if you didn't have Jesus? And I was thinking about that for myself this week, and I thought, well, surely I wouldn't be standing here talking to you <laughs> if I didn't know Jesus as my Savior. If I wasn't a Christian, I probably wouldn't be a pastor. And so I thought that was kind of an obvious one. Uh, I wouldn't be married to my wife. She would have married me <laughs> if I wasn't a Christian. We wouldn't have our kids. And I started to think through it. I thought, and for, to the extreme extent, it's possible I wouldn't even be alive when I think about the self-destructive pattern that I was on. If I was alive, maybe I would be successful in the world's eyes, but empty on the inside. How would your life be different? If you didn't have Jesus, and I started to think about the lives of people that I love and that I care about, I thought about my wife's life. If her parents hadn't trusted Jesus, how would her environment growing up been different? Would she have heard the gospel? How would she have heard the gospel? What decisions would she have made that were different? What environments would she have been in? We wouldn't have been married. How would your life be different? Did you know 
that Jesus Christ is the kindness of God. The Bible clearly states that in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 6. It's without Jesus, without that kindness. How would your world be different? Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 6 says this. We'll put it up on the screen. Ephesians 2, 6. It says that the kindness of God, it says God raised up Christ Jesus, seated with him with the, right, in the heavenly realms, and Christ Jesus, set in the context. But verse 7, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace. So he's showing his grace, expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. It's that Christ Jesus, his kindness, which is a demonstration of his grace, of his love, his, his mercy, it's his supernatural kindness that changes our world. And then you look through the scriptures, and it's that very kindness that transforms everyone else's world. So individually it impacts us, and then it impacts everybody around us. You see in the book of Acts, what happens is that Peter, he stands up, his life is changed by Jesus Christ. Then he preaches a sermon, and the first church starts in Acts chapter 2. 3,000 people, they repent, is what the Bible says. That means that they stop going their own way, and they turn to God. And then they're baptized. That's the way that they tell the world that they've repented and turned their life over to Jesus. If some of you need to be baptized, we'll be baptizing in September. We'd love to baptize you. And then that day, 3,000 people trusted Christ and were baptized. That's a mega church from day one. So if you like small churches, uh, it didn't work well for you in the first century because there was only one and it had 3,000 people. And so they had this mega church in the very beginning. And do you know what happens? These people, they start living their lives differently. They start caring for one another. They start sharing with one another. They start studying the apostles' teaching. They start praying together. And do you know what they do? They demonstrate supernatural kindness because they take their eyes off themselves and they see the needs of others. In Acts chapter 2 and verse 45, it says it like this. It says that they saw what other people's needs were. They sold their possessions and they gave to everyone as they had need. And so they saw those needs and they reached out to meet those needs. Now here's a question. What was the formula? How did they know who had a need? How did they meet certain requirements? And as the giver, how did you know when to do something? There was no formula. They lived by the Spirit. They did the very thing that Galatians chapter 5 talks about. They were led by the Spirit. They kept in step with the Spirit. They were dependent and trusted in the Spirit. That's scary. Because it's hard to manage that. Because there's something mystical about that. We don't like mystical. We don't like being out of control. The Spirit of God was in control. That's the filled life. The fulfilled life is a filled life when you're filled with the Spirit of God. That's what they were living. You know what was happening? Supernatural stuff. Two verses later, it says that God's adding to their number daily those who are trusting Christ as their Savior. Two chapters later, by the time you get to Acts chapter 4, there are 5,000 men in the church plus women and children. There's probably 10,000 people. And they weren't complaining about, I want to have this program and somebody needs to meet my needs and do this thing that I like. You know what was happening? They were unified on mission together to reach lost people. And so they were living in a community of grace with one another, being gracious with one another and speaking truth to the world. And they were caring for one another and meeting needs. In Acts chapter 4, verse 34, it says, there were no needy persons among them. Think about that. No needs among them? For from time to time, there wasn't like a set time where everybody just gave money to the church. It wasn't that. From time to time, those who owned lands or houses sold them. So to their own detriment. And brought the money from the sales. They laid it at the apostles' feet, verse 35. They laid it at the apostles' feet and was distributed to anyone as they had need. How did they know? Because the Spirit led them. And what you see through the book of Acts is that Christianity was spreading like wildfire. Because of the supernatural kindness, it was spreading all over the place. It was like when Jesus was there, and he's healing blind eyes. 
and he's healing leprosy, and he's feeding people, and he's loving people, and accepting them, and demonstrating grace. And people are hearing about this, and they're coming from all over the place. And you read about the first couple hundred years of Christianity and church history. And Eusebius, a, a Christian historian, he writes, and he says when there was famine that would come through the land, Christians, with their withered bodies, and they were starving, would go out on the street corners and hand out bread. So instead of meeting their own needs, they would reach out to the needs of others. Because they just trusted, God, you, you know what's best for me. I'm going to reach out and meet the needs of those around me. And then you see, the, the, if you continue to study the Christian history, there were plagues that came through, and it was Christians that at their own detriment, some of them died doing this, their own detriment would nurse people to health that had reached these, these plagues had reached their homes. It was Christians who had a reputation. It was a big deal in the first century and the second century, too, of infanticide and people abandoning children in the garbage heaps, just like that woman in China. And the Christians developed a reputation for being the ones to go out and rescue these children. Now, a skeptic may say, but yeah, Eusebius, he's a Christian historian. Of course he's going to paint Christianity in a positive light. Well, we have writings from pagan people, too. One guy was an emperor. His name was Julian, not to be confused with King Julian from Madagascar. He was Emperor Julian. See how you can do that church history and kid movie thing can happen there. And so what happens is, is that Emperor Julian, he's a persecutor of Christians. We have writings of, of Emperor Julian to his priests, which were pagan priests, where he says, imitate the Christians so that revival can break out in paganism. Revival doesn't break out in paganism. You know why? Because they don't have the spirit. They can do the same deeds, the same works, but there's a supernatural power with the Holy Spirit. And what happens is that Christianity is spreading like crazy. It's almost like a plague going around the world. It's contagious that people are getting all over the place, but then something happens. What? How is it possible that with over 6 billion people in our world today, at the way that things were going at that point in time in human history, that everyone hasn't heard the gospel? How is it possible there are people in America that don't know how to have a relationship with Jesus Christ? How is it possible, that, and I forget like third world tribes, how is it possible that the whole world hasn't been touched by the gospel of Jesus Christ, even here in our country? Something happened. And I'm not a historian. So I'm not going to pin it down to, you know, industrial revolution or, you know, the Holocaust or pick some significant event in human history, the Enlightenment. Smart people talk about that, right? Like our thinking changed, and so therefore things change. I don't know what happened, but something happened. If you look at people then and you look at us now, and I say us, I'm talking about Christians. The way we viewed the Holy Spirit is different. The way that we view the Holy Spirit now is we're glad that he's here and we want him to comfort us and counsel us, convict us, and encourage us. We don't want him leading anything because he's scary. And what you see with these Christians in the book of Acts and throughout Christian history at the very beginning is there was a dependency on the Spirit of God. They trusted the Spirit to direct and to guide their lives, to live by, to walk by, to keep in step with. And what happened, what flowed out of them was a supernatural kindness that wasn't an assignment from one of the apostles, some pastor, a bishop somewhere. What it was was they naturally did this as the Spirit was leading their lives. And you know what? The Bible never says that you can't experience that kind of Christianity. The Bible doesn't say that after this many years, the Spirit will stop working this way, and then you can no longer actually experience the fruit of the Spirit. Nothing supernatural can happen in your life, but, and you have to search your soul for this one, if most of us are honest, your Christian life is pretty ho-hum. It's pretty average. What in your Christian life can only be explained by God? What in your life is supernatural? 
that apart from God wouldn't even be possible. You can't manufacture it. You can't do it. You see, that supernatural kindness is to lead us to that. In fact, the book of Romans tells us that this kindness, it leads to repentance. Romans chapter 2 and verse 4 so that we can neglect this, we can ignore the riches of his kindness. Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, tolerance and patience, not realizing that God's kindness leads you toward repentance? That's what it leads you to. Do you know what repentance is? It's the same thing you start with. You're headed in a direction and you stop and you turn to him. And what it is is you see, you taste his goodness. And you don't want the other food anymore. And the reality is we all know that we live in a fast food society. We get food through a window, which is kind of a funny concept, from Wendy's or McDonald's. We won't name certain ones because of things that happened this week, but you get fast food that's handed to you. We all know it's not good for us, okay? Whether you've seen Supersize Me, you've read a health magazine for like 30 seconds in a doctor's office, everybody knows that fast food is not good for them. We all know that eventually if we eat enough of it, we'll get fat, and not only will we get fat, but if you eat it on a regular basis, you will die from it. However, if we're really honest, it's convenient, Sometimes it tastes good. Sometimes my shoulder hurts when I eat it, but sometimes it tastes good. Even though we know it's bad for us, we do it. Why? Because it's easy. Now, what if someone shows you good food, like fruit instead of donuts? What if somebody shows you something that's good for you, and it actually is good? Do you know what? Most of us were upset. We miss the easy stuff. We like that junk food. That's a metaphor. I'm not giving health tips today, Okay. See, the Lord says, you taste and see, I'm not, only, not only am I good, but I'm good for you. And when you realize what I'm actually offering you, you won't want the other stuff anymore. That's how good he is. And so his kindness, his supernatural kindness, his benevolence, his care, his compassion in your life should lead you to the point where you won't settle for plastic Christianity. You don't want the fake stuff anymore. You're not willing to live off of your pastor's faith or your friend's faith or somebody's quote on Facebook about how they're growing. You want it yourself. You want to experience the majesty of God that we sing about. You want to know a God that's actually stronger than any of the vices in your life. That you'd actually be in awe of his holiness. That we wouldn't just sing how great you are. We'd experience how great you are in our lives. That's the kindness that leads us to repentance where we stop going after the junk and we turn to him for the real thing. And that's where his kindness should lead us. And that's where we're going to go today. I'm going to give you an opportunity today just to spend some moments in repentance with him. Or you say, God, I want you. I don't want the fake stuff. I don't want fake fruit. I'm sick of trying to fake people out about how I'm doing spiritually. I just want to experience you. And many believers, that's the repentance that you need in your life. Some people, it might be you need to turn from sin because you've been trying to fill voids in your life with stuff that will never satisfy you and you need Jesus Christ. Repent of that sin turn to him. Some of you have never made the most important decision you could ever make. You need to trust Jesus Christ as your Savior. You can do that right now. You can trust Jesus as your Savior by acknowledging your sin before him. We all sin. You acknowledge your sin before him that it separates you from him and say, today I want to trust Jesus Christ to be my Savior. You surrender your life to Jesus. You receive his forgiveness, and you can do that today. We're all going to bow our heads and close our eyes. I'll begin us in a prayer of repentance, and we're going to give you a few moments to repent. Our worship team is going to come. They'll play some instrumental music just so that you're not distracted by people coughing and whatnot. We want you to be able to focus on the Lord right now, to taste and see that he is kind, to experience his kindness even in this moment. If you need to trust Jesus Christ as your Savior, I challenge you just to pray a prayer that goes like this. Father, I acknowledge my sin before you. You can pray it quietly. You can pray it out loud. And I say, Father, I acknowledge my sin before you. I believe your son Jesus died for my sins. 
And today I want to trust Jesus Christ to be my Savior. If you prayed that prayer this morning, I just ask you on that card that you filled out at the beginning, if you just turn it over and put an X on the back of it, we want to pray for you this week. We'd love to give you a Bible. We'll send you a Bible. If you want to talk to someone, we're going to have response team people that are up here. For those of you who have trusted Jesus as your Savior, I just want to lead us in a prayer of repentance as we begin together. Father, we come before you. We're sorry for when we fake following you, for when we try to do it on our own strength, our own performance, by our own works. Father, we desire your fruit in our lives. We desire something supernatural that can only come from you. And Father, we confess sin to you. We confess that we just like convenient Christianity and we really want you. That's what we really long for is you. We don't just want cultural Christianity. We don't just want to do what people tell us to do. We want to know what you guide us to, that your spirit would lead us, that your spirit would guide us. And even though that can be scary, we trust you. We repent. I'm going to give you a few moments just to talk to the Lord.